Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 140 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Clint Lowry from Seven Dust, I want to remind you about all of the features you can find at mistresscarry.com. Not only can you find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, but you can also check out the concert calendar with all of the great shows that are coming to the greater New England area. They're hard to keep track of, and that's why I built the concert calendar. You can also find my blog, my bio, you can send me a message straight to the studio, and you can shop in the online Mistress Carrie store. You'll also find all of the links to my social media pages as well. Get all of that and more at mistresscarry.com. Clint Lowry from Seven Dust is one of my oldest musical friends. I met the guys in Seven Dust shortly after their debut album was released, and our careers have intertwined ever since. Clint Lowry is a guitar player, he's a singer, he's a songwriter, and he's preparing as a solo artist to release a new EP called Ghostwriter on February 17th. So Clint and I sat down to talk about the early days of his career, what it was like having his touring life completely taken away during the pandemic, living life through recovery. We also talked about songwriting and the upcoming new Seven Dust record, the concept of turning pain into art. We talked about his love of artists like Ann Wilson and Boston. And if you're thinking about starting a career in the music business, Clint Lowry has got some fantastic business advice for you that he wishes he could go back and tell his younger self. We talked about the legacy of the Boston Marathon and how his bandmate John Connolly is preparing to run this year and so much more. Clint is literally one of my favorite people and I am so excited that he said yes when I asked him to be on the show. So allow me to introduce you to Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Blue Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Mr. Clint Lowry. Oh, what's it's up, Mr. So Scary? Good to see you. I know. I'm like, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm almost at the verge of like being emotional right now because oh. in the history, everything. You, like number one, you look exactly the same as you did, and number two, like all of a sudden, the the the, the history and the time is flooding in my head right now. It's, it's a lot. Me out. It's a lot. Yeah. 
when you go back and think about how long you and I have known each other, it's been since the first Seven Dust record. So we're pushing like 25 years now. Yeah. Which, like deep into a quarter of a century. <laughs> like I've, no, I've known you half my life. That's kind Same. of yeah. insane. And, uh, you know, throughout that, every time we've ever been in, around each other, it's been around a show, around just chaos at some level where it was work, but it was also this, like, we were kind of living out this dream, your dream in the, in the realm you're in and mine, and we we're just like coming up and we're just raging and going through all these these changes, it's its a trip. Yeah, you and I have in. never gone to like meditation together. We've never like done <laughs> yoga together. No, no, it's always been loud, uh, yeah. insane or, you know, I mean, we've we've had good discussions, but oh, it's yeah. been always just like, rah. I think this industry, you know, friendships get forged in fire, right? That, yeah. that you just become friends in the middle of an F5 tornado, that you're just always doing so so much stuff and it I mean it's come up before because Morgan's been on the show uh LJ uh came on my video show cocktails in the war room a while ago and we were kind of joking about the early days and the fact that we all survived the 24 7 dust kind of period of all of our careers right yeah and that we're here to live to tell the tales yeah I mean I to be totally honest I mean there there's some times where I look back at some of the nights in particular in the area, the Boston area that <laughs> I look back at my, I cannot believe my heart is still beating, you know, but man, it was a lot of fun. You know, yeah. some of it was just some of the most historically like looking at each other, like this is the, be-, you know, this is, we had so many f- real friendships that came from that era that, and that area in general, Boston was always great to us, you know, that whole, you know, vicinity. I, um, I've done a lot of introspection work over the last few years that I think a lot of people have uh, forced, obviously, by the pandemic, but also, um, you know, for WAF to be gone almost three years now, you know, having been there for 29 years of my life, um, those kinds of, you know, losses coming back from that and the pandemic, like I think a lot of people over the last few years have kind of taken stock in the person that they are and the life they want to have and what they want to do with the rest of the life that they have moving forward. And on one hand, I look at some of those crazy times and, and the mistakes I've made in my life. Tell me if this is how you feel. And it's almost like, you know, you, you, you fucked up a lot of things in your life, but at the same time, like I wouldn't change them because I've come to a point in my life where I'm really happy with where I am. And I'm so happy with what I've done and who I've become that I'm really grateful even for the mistakes at this point, which is a really weird place to be at. That you just kind of, I mean, there was so much you just unloaded like, and and that triggered so many thoughts. So just, centering on the fact that you were like what you want to do with the time you have left like i'm deep into that territory now where yeah there are the mistakes the things i've made a tremendous amount and just tried my best to wreck every aspect of my life back in the day in the honor of rock and roll you know and um so now i'm just at that point you know you said the pandemic that was the trigger that was the moment where i'm like you know what i I lost my mom in march of 2020 so that 
that whole thing was, what am I going to do with my time? Who am I going to spend the time with? What is valuable to me now is completely different than what it used to be. Um, my happiness comes from different things than it used to come from. So uh, it is that the, the currency and the current time and the currency of the time I have left is, is tremendous. And I don't, I don't, I don't say as yes, as much as I used to, I don't do things that just make me uncomfortable. And I'm not saying that I, I need everything to be completely with my flow, but if I have any kind of say so in it, I want to be happy, you know, and I want to do, I want to do good work and I want to, you know, we've played this game, you and I with in the industry for years and years, and it can be a very dreadful place to play. And now I'm, we're at the point where, you know, we have, we're picking, choosing tours. We're, we're doing the things that we really want to do. You know, we could go grind more and do more shows and try to make more money and do this and that. But it's like, what are we, what are we trying to do at this point? You know, and, and really the thing is just to be happy, Yeah. you know, or not, not even happy, just content and at peace. Doesn't have to be all like, yeah. But Can just you imagine like, oh, you and I having this conversation 25 years ago about finding inner absolutely peace? Absolutely not. No, no, no. There was no way. I didn't have the capacity to yeah. understand it, you know. And like you said, those mistakes, that's what forged where we're at right now. All that, all that stuff. And like, I thought, I used to think that was so, I want to talk to the old version of me and just like, what the f are you doing? But I, I'm glad that it, like you said, I'm, I'm, it was part of it. And I, know I don't it's a think cliche you can get here without all that. Can you, no. is it possible no, because, to come to this place in your life without making any mistakes? Yeah. I mean, and I think some of the mistakes, um, are the type where I needed pain, really extreme pain to go with the mistakes to make a change because I was doing things that I knew technically were a mistake <laughs> yet. I would still do them. <laughs> You know, I would like look at that. I'm like, man, that's a bad, that's a bad choice to do that, to get in that car, do this and that. I'm going to do it. I know it's bad, but I'm going to do it. So now I needed the bottoms to come with it and the consequence to, to really like, okay, I'm going to change. I've asked this question of, of artists a lot. Um, and I'll, I'm curious to your answer because you've known me long enough. I can't sing, can't write songs, can't play instruments, just can't do it. But I love surrounding myself with people that do have those gifts because I, I am such a lover of music. But you just said something really interesting. Is it possible for great art? I don't just mean music. I mean great art in general to come from anywhere other than pain. Man, that's like the old age question. Like, would Allison Chains been as incredible without the heroin, or would there be like? I, I believe there's absolute tremendous inspiration and pain. I told someone yesterday that the biggest motivation I have to write is is when I'm in an extreme emotion of some type: happiness, uh, sadness, uh, confusion. So I, I definitely think there is an aspect to that. But then there's also this thing now and the older and wiser version of me is like putting myself in into play more, you know, just being more active, being more engaged in these the ceremony of writing songs or the ceremony of creating something. Um, so whereas I don't really have the inspiration, but I'm still at the plate, I'm still like trying to forge an idea to you know m most of the time you go through a bunch of crap to get to something good so i just kind of uh, you know what i lack in despair and 
pain. I, I, I try to make up in time at the plate, t- time just working on my craft. And, you know, it'd be funny to see like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, people are like, man, he would have never done what he did without the acid and all these things. I'm like, well, we never, we'll never know. We'll never know what Lane Staley was, would have been like if he wouldn't have been uh, caught in the traps of that addiction. We'll never know what Jimi Hendrix would have been. He would have been around longer, maybe. And then there would have been songs that came out of that era. So we never know, but that's a great question. You know, I just, I I think that, you know, obviously a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of great art that, that happy people have made, but it seems like the life changing art always comes from a place of breakdown and rebirth of hitting rock bottom and coming back up again that, you know, I've joked that rock and roll wouldn't exist if women weren't bitches. You're welcome. <laughs> so I mean, I, there's a lot of songs have been written about it. You know what I mean? A lot of really, really good songs. You know? and, and the thing is, people, if it wasn't true, people wouldn't relate to them. There wouldn't be this connection that is so wide and mass. And, you know, people relate to anguish and they relate to like someone screwing you over. And then rock and roll's attitude just in general or music for the most part is is geared toward that attitude geared toward that mistreatment geared toward that over-the-top emotion and love or whatever it is you know the extremes are more interesting yeah i think so too you know what i just realized while i was listening to you talk that you and i wore matching shirts today <laughs> what oh my. Is that, what what kind of well, you know what's funny? I just changed my shirt right before I came on because I had some like really dad rock shirt, you know. And I, I was like, I'm gonna go put something cool on. <laughs> All I need is what? What is that logo? It's Tool. That... It's Tool's logo. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> well, same um, wavelength. I know, right? Well, and you're saying all this stuff that's been in my head for like, you know, years. So I'm like, she's all in my soul. right? Yeah, now. Oh, I'm in there. I tapped right into the marrow, babe. I'm in <laughs> there. Yeah. Well, I'm, in. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw you guys and it was obviously before the pandemic. So I'm talking maybe 2019, 2020, maybe when you guys were in town and we actually got to hang for a while. Yeah. And. A lot, we touched on it, but a lot of things have obviously changed in our lives since then. So I want to kind of go back to like how you handled the lockdown and the pandemic, both as an artist, but also as a husband and a father, because Seven Dust has always been a hard touring band, which means you've been gone a lot. And now you're stuck yeah. at home with the wife and kids. Totally different lifestyle. Yeah. So I, I think someone said it. Uh, to me once they're like this pandemic is a true audit of your personal life and relationships and I always had that question in the back of my mind how am I going to survive domesticated life Uh, you know am I even built for that emotionally and because I've it's been I've been on tour since 1989 I've been doing it since I was 18 years old Uh, so all that you know but I just to kind of let you know, right before the pandemic, I was really, really close personally to not uh, continuing on. I was at the, and it wasn't seven to us. It wasn't a seven to us issue. It was a me issue. I, I would reach the point where I like, I don't enjoy this anymore. Wait, continue. Given, hold on. Continuing on as an artist or continuing on at all? What are we talking as, about here? As far, yeah, yeah. I need to clarify. So that was more of the touring. Okay. I, I had been beaten down. I've given so much 
to touring from my whole identity was like I graduated from school a year early. I wrote a letter to my principal, took my last credit, got my diploma, went on tour. So I, I was at the point where I was just unhappy um, in the dynamic of it, living amongst all these guys. And, and that was okay. I could, I could weather that because I really love the guys still. But it was more of I'm, I have these children, my mom and dad, my, you know, they were musicians. My dad and I had a very distant relationship. He was a musician. He was gone all the time. So there was an emotional disconnect from him touring. And I understand exactly what he did. But um, I didn't want to give that up. I was really resentful. Um, I wanted I had these really you know young children. I wanted to be around them, and I was just giving up too much. And I was at the point where I was like really getting tested, and I was like telling the guys, "Man, we got to slow this down. I can't do it like this anymore." And then the pandemic happened, and then I was like, <clears throat> "Okay." And you know, and it was kind of once the fact set like set in that you are not going to be going on tour for a while, I thrived. I, I wasn't like most people. I'd already lost my mom. I was really, I learned a lot more about recording. I got in touch with my, just my, my soul. I, I did all this, all the things a lot of people did. They tried to figure out who they were. And I, I wasn't in fear of money or, or anything like that. We, I, you know, I hustled, I found new ways to survive and I, and I figured out, I'm like, I can live, I can do this. But then the the flip side was it made me miss touring again it, it it was a much needed pause for me personally i was like i was happy every time they would announce you know you're not going to tour for this long because i needed it I, and i'm like please let me miss that again let me understand and be grateful for it because there's nothing worse than when you see a band play and they're phoning it in they look miserable seven dust is original members i'm very protective of wanting that to end as the five I want us to come in and out together uh, with our relationships intact. So it's really tough when you live on top of each other for that many years and you still can have a good friendship. I don't want to abuse that. And and you guys pandemic, were known as a hard touring band. Like yeah. there are very few bands that have grinded on the road at the tempo that Seven Dust has since yeah. the beginning. You're road yeah, dogs. I mean, you always have been. And we were one of the first to, to go out. For the, and when the pandemic was lightening up a little bit, we were the, one of the first bands to do that, you know, and so, and, but we're so conditioned to that, that it seems normal, but we're starting to draw our, our, you know, put our boundaries out there for that. But yeah, I, I, the whole pandemic was a time to really, you know, re-energize my love for touring. Um, I miss the people, you know, touring is a, is a son of a bitch for older, older people in general. It's a young person's game, but, uh, you know, you got all these cranky old ass dudes on the bus now. With <laughs> different, you know, we're not as twenty four seven dust as we used to. But, but there's good things about that too. But I won't keep going on about it. But that that pandemic was a lifesaver as far as okay. Now I'm ready to to finish our career out, career out. But we're not going to do it the same. We're not going to be as available as we used to be. I looked at it. You know, obviously, you know, I joke with everybody that. You know, we got laid off before it was cool. Like AAF was yeah. gone pre-pandemic. So for all of us, that that crew, we weren't a band, but I look at the staff of WAF as being people that were forged in fire, you know, and mm -hmm. that we were kind of already adrift when things started to shut down. And I looked at it kind of the same way that you did, which was, okay, 
what am I going to do? Like, what is my life going to become? How am I going to move forward? And how can my happiness and my life enjoyment kind of get folded into that? And I looked at the pandemic like you were either going to spend all your time on social media and in your pajamas on the couch or you were going to get moving. And so I looked at it like, okay, the world shut down. I'm going to run three times as fast. So when the world picks back up again, I'm ready to go because I had to reinvent everything. Yeah. And so like you, it was like, what do I really want to do? Like, what's going to bring me joy? What What is it that I want to kind of set for goals for myself, both personally and professionally, and like really kind of move forward? And it's it's interesting that you and I have always had these parallels, right? Because, um, you know, the loss of uh, your mom is something that I don't care how old you are as a kid is devastating. And shortly after the pandemic, I found out that my mom had Alzheimer's. Yeah. And so I've been dealing with the slow, painful loss of my mom, even though she's still here with me. So when you talk about, you know, that relationship, I had this same conversation a few weeks ago with Chris Daughtry, by the way, because he's, he lost his mom during all of that as well. And, yeah. you know, it, it is something where it really does make you look forward and you go, okay, this, this shit's real. Like life is real. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, my dog's chiming in now. No, it's, mine but, are probably trying to do the same thing. Yeah. So, uh, it, it is real. And when I, I called it, when my mom passed, it was like the safety net of parenting, parenting, even though I didn't utilize my mom as a, as a parent, but I, there was a tightness with her and I, and when that, she went away, I was like, okay, now you're on your own. You, their chapter with her is gone. Um, so now it's what you know my my relationship with my wife my kids and it's the legacy all the things all the conversations we've had you know and i sure i, I miss the hell out of her but um you know you were talking about the alzheimer's my dad had had a little bit of that and parkinson's and he had a, a, the decline was going to be one that you're talking about and he passed away before it really got bad so my heart goes out to you for that. It sucks. Uh, it does it's such a cruel mortality. disease. It's the it's the the cruelest. The yeah. cruelest. They're there still, and and it's the burden of the family behind. But um, so I I know you'll get through it. Um, you know, it's, you know, everyone's a great spiritual guru, and every you know everyone's got things figured out until life dumps something like that on yeah. your lap. And I'm sure you're a tough person. You you'll handle it with no question. But that is no joke. And that will make you reanalyze everything, you know, yeah. just watching the, the frailty of your parent, which was the, the, the pillar of your life. And then they're falling apart. You're like, well, guess what? That's inevitable. I saw my mom laying there. I watched her eyes just fade out. And I was like, everything just meant shrunk. Yeah. It's like all the things that I'm thinking are like a huge deal. It's nothing. And you know, it, and there's that last little breath, you know, and it, it, it shook me in a huge way. I'm still like, I'm just now getting to where I'm like, okay, I can, I can get through, you know? Well, one of the things that I realized is that we grow up thinking our parents know everything, right? Yeah. And then you realize they no, just were figuring it out. I mean, they weren't even like, it wasn't that they didn't know everything. They were wrong. <laughs> 
my my family was it was so dysfunctional. I like it is my life and my children's lives has nothing. The, my house was insane. Parties. My mom dated a few different men. And there were some of them were aggressive, and there was volat you know all this volatile. It was insane. Weed, beer, like it was all of the stuff, you know. But she was a loving mom. She was strong. But that was just that's how she was. You know, she was just that way, and she had a really big passion and. You know, I'm sure you had your, you know, now that you're an older, you know, you're in your life, like, damn, that was, why did they even, that wouldn't even be, half the things that happened in my childhood would be criminal charges, yeah. you know what I mean, in terms of neglect. Dude, <laughs> I, that would, yeah. when the, when the vaccine started to come out, my, my 20, well, she's like 22 now, my niece and I were having a conversation and you know, we were just talking about like vaccines and stuff, right? And she said something so funny. We started talking about the chicken pox. And I was like, well, you've never had the chicken pox, right? And she was like, no, I got vaccinated for it when I was a kid. And I was like, you know what they did when we were kids? If somebody got it in the neighborhood, everybody's parents sent them to get yeah. chicken pox. And she goes, did they call DSS? <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, like, what? No. There wasn't a such number. She was like, wait, they purposefully exposed you to chicken pox? And I was like, yeah, that's what you I did. Think, yeah. That's the definition of a vaccine in, <laughs> you know, in, in a sense, you know. But to her, that was that. child abuse. Like she couldn't yeah. even wrap her head around it. So yeah. it's a different era completely. I know. talked to a lot of musicians about about that reintegration at home, right? And um, you know, I, I got married during the pandemic and I'm now a stepmom, which is, which is weird. Cause now I got a couple of teenagers that I'm kind of responsible for helping to shape and mold their brains, which yeah. wow. And one of the similarities that I see, obviously they're not the same before somebody gets on Twitter and is like, Carrie said military and touring yeah. rock bands are the same, but, but your family has to adjust to your absence and then they have to adjust to you being around all the time. How did everybody handle dad being home all the time? That's a that's a major major point. And the only only reason I I like in a very very respectful way use the military family dynamic as a comparison to musicians only because the time away can be extensive what they do and what we do is a completely different world. So let's establish that first. Yeah. I have the utmost respect, sacrifice on that side, but you're exactly right. It's always like, you know, musicians being kind of self-centered. They're always like saying, well, you know, how am I going to handle this? And I'm used to that. But like, yeah, you're right. There's, if you have a family, wife, kids, whatever they they have to understand, you know, Tara says all the time, it takes us, it takes you a few days to get decompressed from the tour because you're on tour, you're just in the zone because you're surviving it. Get home and then they have to get used to. I'm a big, you know, I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm like kind of moving around. So I, in consideration, I I don't like keep myself scarce at first, but I'm just kind of like ask what the, what are your routines, what are you doing. So I I fall in place with the flow that they establish when I'm gone, because that's an interesting thing. I mean, it is a huge adjustment. And then some people be like me, insecure musicians can be like, well, do they not want me here? No, it's not that it's just they, I mean, if you're easy, if you're a loving person, it's not I me. Mean, some people come home when they're a wreck and they're aggressive and there's, there's elements that happen with that. But I come home, I'm generally pretty like, 
pretty much agreeable and like, Hey, okay, what do I need to do? How can I help you? How can I be, how can I integrate back, back into this life? You know, and that's a science to it. And it's something I'm still working on, but they got, you know, they don't, the kids loved it. Um, I just, I love being with my kids we have two real good kids. They're not, you know, no issues psychologically. There's no damage there. <laughs> they're just normal. <laughs> they're loved. I do a lot of things with them. Um, it's really all about it. It's not always comfortable. It's not easy being a parent all the time, but I, I'm, I'm, I was completely ready for it. So yeah, there's an adjustment for them. My wife, she, yeah, I don't know. I think she likes when I leave some, at some point because it keeps some magic around, you know, yeah, missing like, the person you love does do something yeah. to a relationship. So do, no matter what, if, if I quit touring, I will still travel. I will still do things. Even if I just go up the street to a hotel <laughs> For two days, like I'm just gonna let you be without me for a second, not for not for me, but for you to. But yeah, that's, did the, that's marriage. That's marriage, you know. Did uh, did the kids get the famous Lowry musical genes? Because this is something that we talk about on the show all the time. Is and I I just talked to Scott Ian from Anthrax about this. Is musical ability genetic or learned because your family has a long lineage of musical talent in it how far back does it go do you know um it, it kind of really started with my dad because my dad grew up with he was a one of 12 and it was on a farm and they were picking cotton it was native american lumbee tribe north carolina whatever but yeah so he he was the first there was uh, there was another uncle that played guitar that kind of taught taught him you know, introduced it to him. So he was kind of the first, as far as I know, on that side, my mom was pretty much the first on her side. So it was like that generation. Um, but yeah, I, it's so interesting because that it's like a generational habits can be passed on. People say, is it DNA or is it, it or is it behavioral, you know, environment stuff that they pick on? And that's, that's a real good thing. I, I think there's like an ability to have rhythm and understand keys and stuff that could be in the DNA side of it. Um, Cause I just naturally heard rhythm and harmonies and different things and my dad would recognize it. But my kids, they're at that age where I was starting to be find my musical voice. My little girl plays piano, uh, but my son has no interest in it whatsoever. Like not into it. He's all athlete, all that all day long. He loves music, but he's not, he'll, I'll hear him sing sometime. I'm like, nope. nope. <laughs> You ain't going to do it. And you know what? I'll be honest. My dad was brutally honest when it comes to music. If you don't have a really like foundation talent, natural, and, and you're not working at it, I have no, I don't let up at all. Like if my, I'm not like over, I don't critique my little girl too much, but when she plays and if it's wrong, I'm like, mm, my dad was brutal. He's like, that sounds like shit. <laughs> I'm like, damn. He said, well, if you're going to survive, you got to get good, you know? And because your brother Corey's a musician as well. He's in yeah. Seether and been in bands. You guys have been in bands together and apart and toured together. My younger together. brother, Dustin, he, my younger brother was probably the most talented. He just, it just didn't work out for him. But he was, uh, I don't know if it didn't work out. I think he just kind of lost his luster for it, watching us stumble through the music stuff. But yeah. he was he was such a great, and is a, a talented guy. So, But he loves music. You know, it's something he'll always have in his heart it's just not what he does for a living i i have a theory about like your musical upbringing that there's the soundtrack to your childhood the music yeah. you get exposed to gifted like my mom one of the greatest gifts she gave me was the beatles and this yes. love of music so 
I feel like there's two parts to your life. There's the soundtrack part, the stuff that gets gifted to you. Mm -hmm. And then there's something you hear one day that you decide you like, and you go, that's mine. And your music life changes. So what are your two parts? What was the soundtrack of your life? And then what was it that changed it for you? Oh man, I remember these specifically and the way that you frame this is perfect. So that is a huge, I never thought about it like that. So it was Access Bold or that Jimi Hendrix record. I used to stare at it. It was my mom and dad's music first. They had an album called Plant and Sea and there was this artwork, you know, vinyl was just crazy back then. So I would look at that Jimi Hendrix, uh, some of Jimi Hendrix's records that my dad would have. And I would look at those I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And and, and you said Beatles. Uh, that was a, a huge thing in our house. So a lot of the that was the introduction of music and I would hear that on a regular basis and my mom and dad's music. I'm like, that's cool. And it's interesting. And I like watching them sing. And, and then it was, to be honest, I, I never really credit this band much, but it was, I had heard a queen uh, play the game, that record. I had moved to a new neighborhood. My mom and dad got divorced, new kids, new music. They played the queen record and it was like another one bites the dust. And, you know, the first song on that, it, uh, and then there was another song, Hungry Hearts, uh, the, you know, Bruce Springsteen. It was like this weird, there was, there was a minor key in the song, and um, I just, I fell in love with the, it was a 45, and I would listen to it over and over, and, and between the Queen and that, and that was like where I was like, I'm obsessed with it. Like, now this is mine. They didn't really know who it was and then there was the guy that pulled in with the trans am at the bus stop blasting back in black yeah i was like it was a straight out of the movie like the, he had the feathered hair and he pulled up and i was like whoa he's like smoking a cigarette and i heard acdc that little count off and he was blasting it through his little tape deck and it was an eight track and i was blown away so that was then i became an acdc fan but that, that was it it was like hendrix your beatles uh into queen and acdc which went into you know kiss and all the other bands and you know i was a huge music that was everything to me you've always been such a music guy and there's there's some different facets of it right so you're obviously a guitar player you can sing but you can also write songs and there are aspects of that some people can only do one or the other but you kind of so which one came first for you when you were young growing up in a house with musicians were you writing lyrics out first did you pick up a guitar first or were you singing first how did it work um it was actually drums first for a little while and then we were too poor to get a drum set so i started just playing my dad's guitar and one of the right songs i remember hearing uh my my best friend growing up he learned iron man on guitar from a guitar teacher he came home and played it for me and i was and i immediately thought i want to write a song like iron man so i i was i started writing i never understood like if i would get frustrated with learning someone's song i was like i'm just gonna play it this way (laughs) you know it was almost like a cop-out but it was my first introduction of to, to writing i was always one of the right and I never really sang. I never really thought of myself as a singer because I had my brothers and my mom and dad were such great singers. I was okay. And then um, I started writing these lyrics during the day when I would be in school in third and fourth grade, fifth grade. 
write these lyrics out and just like hand them to my bandmates like look at this man you know and so i was the <clears throat> the writing was always important to me more so the therapy of it just being able to do anything i wanted to do i didn't have to do any kind of I, you know, people were learning other people's songs. I'm like, that's cool. And I definitely learned millions of songs, but it was more of like, I want to do a song like that. I want to have a song like ACDC. I want to have a song like Iron Maiden. And uh, so the songwriting was always the thing. And the guitar was, I fell in love with guitar once I let go of my drum, my drumming dream. <laughs> uh, you know, I became a full on guitar player, made that commitment and just obsessed over it. Do you remember the day. first song you wrote to the point where it was an entity, like a thing that had music and lyrics and melody and all of it, that it was done? Yeah, it was a song called Vanderlight. <laughs> it was a We Rock or Vanderlight. It's cloudy which one came first. <laughs> but uh, Vanderlight was this one really simple. It was kind of like the Iron Maiden, uh, Iron, Iron Man, Black Sabbath riff, but it was like uh, about this local you know tale about a guy that got his head chopped off at the train track and carried the, the light you know every every town has one of those stories so vanderlight was what it was called and if you go down to this train uh this this railroad track you'd see the guy the light you know and so we wrote a song about it and uh, it was ridiculous but that was the first one i remember saying this is it man <laughs> you know, we're songwriters now and but uh, you know here I am, thousand years later, thousand songs later. Well, that's and and that was something that I saw that you were doing during the pandemic is that you actually do these like songwriting seminars where you yes. help other people craft songs of their own. Yeah, and I do it like this, like via Zoom, but I'll, I can share like a screen, and um, that was that came from the pandemic as well i was doing that a lot and what i really loved about that was the fact that there were you unlock these options for songwriters that didn't know that were there and then from doing the process for a living you know you find ways you work with other people like oh i'm, I'm going to use that or i'm going to use uh this template or so you learn uh, things that work for you and you share that with other people and to see like little light bulbs happen and breakthroughs with a, a fellow songwriter it's incredible and I, my true passion is helping other people kind of discover their voice and uh, helping a young artist have the, the confidence to to be a songwriter because it's a very vulnerable thing and uh it can be an emotional uh, roller coaster uh for, for a serious writer it can be and uh so i like help i like i like helping people navigate that and I learned from them too. Everyone's got their process and I listen to them. Oh, that's cool. I never even thought about it. Some of these young, young artists are like light years ahead of me as far as the bandwidth they have, you know, to understand and absorb things they are like sponges. But I like being around that. It's, it's cool. It was very rewarding. Um, I talked to a lot of songwriters about process, like what you're talking about. So let me give you some processes that other people have told me work for them because I want you to tell me what yours is. So somebody like Zach Wilde told me that he sits in a room <clears throat> and starts a song, works on a song, finishes a song, closes the book, on to the next. And it only writes when he has to write because he's got something he needs to write for. Then there's somebody like Jerry Cantrell that told me that he'll get like a riff idea and he'll like sing the riff into the phone 
and like squirrel it away for later. And then I've talked to other people that like keep little <laughs> journals next to the bed and will wake up with like a lyric idea and like will, you know, write it down in a little book and that when they need an idea for something, they'll thumb through these books looking for a lyric. So how does it work for you? What's, is it the melody, the riff, the lyric? How does it start? No, I just love hearing about those. I could, I could go on all day just listening to you tell me about these amazing people doing their process. Well, this but. is why I love what I do. Like, I don't have your gift, but I love talking to artists about how it works for them because everybody's way is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, it's changed over the years with the technology that's available now, What the way I currently do it. Um, I sit down, I open a session, it's all kind of set up already. It's very efficient. I tap out a drum beat with this. And uh, it looks like a little Casio keyboard that we had when we were kids. It is. That's exactly what it is. But it's just the trigger and I'll um, write beats and there's this amazing technology. It sounds exactly like drums or whatever. And I'll write those and I get to uh, live out my, my drum fantasy, you know, still being a drummer. So, I mean, it's, and I write a lot of stuff on it. So I've become pretty efficient at it and I'll write a beat or I'll, I'll, and then I'll start riffing out. I'll loop it and I'll just play a riff over and over it. And I'll build the entire, well, not the entire piece of music, but I'll record all the parts, guitar and bass. So it sounds huge and it's very inspirational musical landscape. And then I'll sing over it. I'll drive around. I'll, I'll make a little MP3 and drive around, listen, and I'll sing in the car. And like you said, with the voice memo, I'll sing the melody first. It's always the melody. Every now and then a word will come out when I'm singing a melody. Like, oh, that's cool. Like my last thing, God bless the renegades. I, I just started saying that and I didn't know what it meant or it just sounded kind of cool to say it. <laughs> so I built the whole topic around that. So yeah, it's always music, melody, and then I put the words in last because I just want to sing it and feel it before I put any kind of lyrical. But people that can put lyrics first, I think that's that's incredible. You know, people, I think I would be a better lyricist if I started with that a little sooner. And but um, you know, when I do really concentrate on lyrics, it's it's, it's that's a whole other side, I think there's a huge connection that happens within the lyrics. Melody pulls you in, but lyrics is what holds you. It comes yeah. up all the time on the show. And with all the conversations I've had with musicians, I've never talked to anyone that does it the way Elton John and Bernie Toppin do it. That's, that's always the, the, that's always the example, right? You know what I mean? The Nobody else does it first, like that. But he fit all those words in like it's it's tricky to take words and fit them in with like phrasing wise like he would do it all like kind of make it but to have somebody hand you finished lyrics mm. and you weren't there to contribute and then they leave and leave you with these words and then you craft a song and a melody around it and you guys were never in the same room at the same time like yeah. every songwriter i talk to they're like no idea how that works for them obviously it does yeah and it's some of the most most iconic songs in history you know yeah. that was just their dynamic that's interesting though that, that's always the one that i refer to when people talk about writing lyrics first i'm like oh the elton john yeah yeah um normally when i was just on the radio and you guys roll into town you'd you'd come up on the station and we'd do a live interview around whatever songs and commercials we had to play and then you'd go do sound check and we'd hang out during the show and after the show or whatever. 
doing my show this way, I can get into a lot more of the conversations we would normally have backstage, in the dressing room, on the buses. So, like, I was never able to get into real in-depth on the air with these questions because we were always like, oh, we got to get you guys to the gig or we got to get into commercials or, like, whatever. So one of the questions that's come out of this new way of doing my show now is this songwriting question. So this is not a best song question. This is not a favorite album question. It's not greatest rock and roll band ever. As a songwriter's perspective, can you give me an example of a song that you think is perfectly crafted? I don't care the artist. I don't care the album. But a song that you're like, that's perfect when it, it in an example of aliens came down and said, what does perfect songwriting look like? What do you think it would be for you? But then you got to break it down and tell me why. I know it's a hard question, but it's a good question. It's an amazing question. I wish you would have texted me or emailed me. Hey, here's what I'm going to ask you. No, because this <laughs> so is I a can... gut in like everybody has a hard time with it, but the answers are always really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I'm always where you you said you didn't want to ask the favorite song or favorite, uh, you know, it's impossible. I, anytime people ask that question, I'm like, I, I can't answer it. There's too many variables. There's too much like what genre, what yeah, what era, what you know, like. But this is so, breaking down the skill of songwriting. Yeah, man, man. Um, I'm now I'm trying immediately to put in like, well, if it was the rock song. <laughs> template this would be there if it was but a good media, song was, is a good song and can be put into song. any genre oh man you know what i mean and this maybe it's just because the boston era but like there's songs that boston did that were they they there was so much that happened in the song um melody wise with more than a feeling uh there was melodic there's peaks and valleys there's um amazing talent singing wise musician wise arrangement um more than a feeling was one of the first songs i i i like in that same era we were referring to before one of those songs that i heard i'm like it starts off slow it ends with this you know this huge build and so that that like just instinctually is a perfectly crafted song um on every measure the melody the sound of the vocals the guitar playing drumming is no there's no shabbiness going on there um but god dang there's so many (laughs) so many other songs i mean i don't know why that just that song came up in my mind um man let me see one more. Uh, I mean, no, I'll, I'll stick with that. No, that that's kinda, a good one. Uh, you know, and I, I gotta say, Bohemian Rhapsody, just because it is just such an like, there are no rules to that song, and I think that's a beautiful thing, because it, in all aspects of formula rock and anything like that, they broke all, all the rules, and it was such a liberating time for songwriters back then. So that that song is pretty much for me, the perfect template of what the capabilities of a writer are, you know, from piano orchestration to vocal ability to guitar solo 
to arrangement. The, that those two songs are huge. Ronnie Radke from Falling in Reverse brought that song up when I asked him, and he said, um, "If you don't like Bohemian Rhapsody and you don't like dogs, he doesn't trust you, and he thinks you need therapy." <laughs> yeah, I, I can see him saying that. Yeah. <laughs> totally. He's been on my radar. I've been every time I like open up anything, he's like there. I just like. <laughs> like so, I've, I, I have never really chance. I. I've never met him before, but I just hear his stories, and he, it's kind of interesting because I know he's he's a riot. So yeah, he but, definitely um, speaks I, his mind, which in this day yeah. and age is kind of refreshing, you know. You know what I'm saying? It's like if people say whatever about him or what anyone, I'm like, you know what? There's li- at least there's some danger in the guy. You know, he's saying stuff. It's like you know, it's it's a little like you said it's refreshing it's fun it's entertaining everyone acts like they don't they, they annoys them but i like it's you're you're intrigued yeah you know that i like the beefs back and forth like to me it's just, it's I, I just get the popcorn out like, look <laughs> <laughs> they're taking it all so serious and you know it's like i it's 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 kind of interesting to see because you get to really know you know rock singers and in, in in history they, they've always been that way they've yeah. like yeah, let me poke the beer a little bit and say something that'll piss people off. And I like it. I talk about the songwriting stuff a lot. And part of the reason why I do is, you know, you're, you've got this new EP out called Ghost Rider. And mm-hmm. you're also working on this upcoming new Seven Dust record. How do you decide a song idea? Is it Clint Lowry solo song or whether that idea would be better served as a Seven Dust song? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it used to be a lot more definitive in terms of the sound. Like I used to write songs like this is absolutely never going to be a seven dust song. Morgan or Lejeune will hear it and like, man, we should do that. You know, I think when we did Angel Sun, that kind of opened us up to a way more melodic, uh, you know, pull of songs to pull from. We're able to pull that off the way Lejeune sings, and we we didn't always have to be you know heavy all the time. And but um. You know the stuff i do on my own sometimes i set out to write something that is specifically for seven dust and then there's a sound to it and there's a formula i hate to say a formula but there is there's a sound so i write i love writing that i'm very comfortable writing songs for that band uh with this when i do my own stuff or anything outside there's a there's a ceiling that gets lifted a little bit where i can do things that ordinarily wouldn't be ideal for seven dust uh, and, and some of the things I sing, you know, I write vocals, some of the vocals for seven of stuff too. And Lejean and I will collaborate, you know, Morgan and, and, and John, everyone's kind of in there, but, um, I just, you know, writing vocals for my own thing, I have a different style of singing a little bit different than LJ. Uh, so I get to kind of explore more of an alternative melody, uh, then what happens with Lejean has one thing he does and it's really powerful and it's very you know i write songs that have him in mind you know i know how he works and he knows how i work and so with this i get to kind of just sing it i don't have to put that filter on it i can just sing it how this is how i would sing it this is how i feel about it um so yeah there's definitely distinguishable factors between but sometimes there's a there's a new song on the new seven dust that was uh it was it's one of my favorites it's kind of a poppy rock song but seven dust ended up uh tracking it and uh that was one that was clearly going to be on mine there was a song on the last record uh 
the last two records that were going to be solo songs that ended up being because I always play the songs for him just in case someone you know digs it you know but I'm I have catalogs of songs that just sit so I just kind of dig through all of them and so what were the ones yeah. that that Seven Dust has already released that you're talking about? Um, not original was on All I See Is War. There was a song called Not Original that I wrote for myself. Um, on the last one we did, what was it? I want to say it was a song called Love. And that was more of a song that Morgan and I had kind of worked on. And we were going to do like the Call Me No One thing. But they ended up being <clears throat> for Seven Dust. But um, yeah, there's been a few. I mean, even Angel Sun, I had that music and everything kind of sitting around in the chorus for, before the whole Lynn Straight thing ever happened. And just kind of had that Xmas Day was a song that I just had on the side that I wasn't ever going to play for Seven Us. We ended up doing it. So, yeah, I mean, I used to be more picky about, uh, I'm actually a little more picky now because there's songs that I really want to express myself with. If Seven Dust does it, you know, it's like, there it goes into that machine and, and it does what it does there. But the whole purpose of the solo stuff is just to do stuff that's a little different so I can express myself musically throughout this other outlet and sing it myself. It's, it's hard to turn a song over all the time. If you write something and you write something lyrically and it make, means a lot to you, Lejean always does a better job singing it than I would. But there's something about you give it, it's like, ugh. I want to, I want to, I feel that, you know, I want to say that. So this, the side project is small, but it's a good way for me to just express myself uh, as an individual singer and writer, you know. And you guys are always super supportive. You know, uh, Morgan's had his solo stuff. LJ has been working on his solo stuff. Yeah. It seems like the band is, has really found this place where you guys are like, we come together, we do what we do, but everybody's kind of got these other creative outlets that are just for them. Yeah. I, I really encourage Lejean, especially, you know, he hasn't really done anything on the solo thing. I know he's been working hard on it. Uh, John's done it. I, I, I think what I, what happens when I do the, do the side things, I come back to seven, us a stronger writer, a stronger member, uh, band member, um, because you get to let it out of your system and uh, things you can't do in seven us or you didn't feel like you could do, you do them, you come back and like, okay. And now you, when you're back with your, your band, your core band, you're like, you're grateful because you're like, man, I need, you know, it's fun to lean on these other people when you're by yourself, there's no one else to, <laughs> to blame. <laughs> it's all on you. So if it sucks, it's all your suck, you know, but you know, who um, said that exact same thing to me Ann Wilson. Really? Yeah. I love Ann Wilson. Me too. I, I, I did the interview like mm. this and she popped up on my screen on zoom and I was mm. like, ah! I couldn't do it. Yeah, freak me out. She's too powerful. She's too powerful. She's the best singer. I don't even say female singer. I love, love, love Ann Wilson's voice. I think yeah. it's, it's still so good, and the texture and the grit, the range. She's she's enormous talent, man. I had to ask David Draymond. I'm like, how the hell did you get her on the record, dude? Yeah, I don't know. I, they wouldn't have done that sound of silence to kind of open up the success barometer <laughs> well he he slid into her dms on social media that's how he did, did he it really so yeah. <laughs> anything's possible i was so but I, I i love disturbed they've been so good to us through the years uh we've been big supporters of each other but when they got ann wilson i was like man i, I am legitimately hating 
because I'm like so jealous. I loved, I mean, I loved heart. And uh, when they got that, I said, it totally makes sense. I can see them doing that. And the song's cool. And uh, she's incredible. So yeah, they were very fortunate to have her. And I'm sure she was kind of cool. Like, oh, I'm going to sing on this, this rock band's track and yeah. power ballad. And it sounds awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, So I want to talk to you about, I mean, you guys haven't announced the Seven Dust stuff. So can you give me any hints of when we're going to hear this record that you guys have been working on? Well, can you yeah, tell I, me when not get in trouble? <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm at the stage in my life where I could give a shit if someone <laughs> get in trouble about anything. I'm not, you know, I don't work for them. They work for us, but um, it'll be this year. It'll be in the next few months. You're going to start hearing some songs. Uh, we recorded it a while back. I'm super excited about it. Um, I won't say the names of anything because I know that they're very particular, you know, the team wants to say it a certain way, but um, it'll be out this year. We're going to be touring it this year. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to, to release my EP as soon as I could at the beginning of the year so I could get that out and flush that out and put it out there and then give 100% attention to Seven Dust. But I'm very stoked about the record. A lot of bands say that. I'm I'm amazed we're still making music we love and we we're not phoning it in. Uh, we work really hard on it. Um, yeah, it'll be out this you know the first songs we're, we're going to be doing some videos uh, in the next week or so. All the guys are going to be coming around my area. We're going to film some cool stuff and it's going to be build a bunch of really cool content and and roll it out in the, you know early spring, late spring. And then uh, I'm thinking about a summer release and yeah. You'll be able to give me an honest answer on this now because the band has been through it all. Okay. Do you think it's harder to keep a marriage together or a band together? Mm. It's so similar to a marriage. Um, I think it's harder to keep a, mm, I don't know. Well, let's look at the, the stats. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I said this the other day, how many, how many bands do you know that have been together for 25 plus years that are original members, you know, for, for many reasons, they aren't original members. Maybe there was someone that left early, early, but there's, you know, but it's not the original, you know? So statistically, if you defined a marriage, successful marriage being all the original members intact, as 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 compared to a man or woman or a woman a woman a man man, their marriage, you know, staying together. So the difference with the band is you get all these personalities, different different aspects, different marriages. I'm married to four other guys, you know. So I think it's harder to keep a band together. Um, when you have two people, you have two dynamics. Uh, sometimes the band is two people. <laughs> sometimes it's you know, very much like heart, you know, they have the two people that sometimes they get along. Sometimes they don't. I I don't know, man. I, I would say if anything, it's 55, 45, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, really close. It's very similar dynamic. Um, yeah. And I, I guess the, the side projects is kind of like having, uh, an open marriage, <laughs> get to go test out other things you know that's kind of but it's been a healthy thing i mean it can be it's it's been the cause of resentments in the past because there's people that get threatened by it or why do you want to do that or you're taking energy from this but once we figured out that it was just a healthy thing to do we're like 
And that's why we're still together, you know, because we allow ourselves some grace. When I knew I was going to talk to you, like you said at the beginning, it's a sentimental thing, right? I get a little misty when I talk to, you know, one of one of the guys in one of the bands that has been there with me since the beginning of my career. I feel Mm -hmm. like we grew up together in in a lot of ways. And so when you think back to like those early days, you think back to a lot of those shows in the Northeast, in in the early part of Seven Dust. What are some of the fondest memories? Like, what are some of the things that you just remember and you just go, oh, man, that was cool? You know what? The, the gradual, it wasn't very gradual. It, it took a few years. But once there were a consistent amount of people at the shows where we were like, going to one city sold out, going to another sold out, you know, or, or having that really peak of our, uh, I guess not celebrity, but our, uh, we were actually w- a well-known band and people, we, we always felt like the weird kids that were invited to the party that we weren't cool enough to be at, you know? So there were a few times where it would be, cons- it would, it took so many years of it having to happen consistently for us to believe that we were worth some of that uh acknowledgement and those people coming so it would come like man it's a fluke these people are going to figure it out you know that we're really not that good and so after we kind of there was a few moments where i remember being in the dressing room so like man guys we actually man we were like we're a serious band like this is what the dream was when we were kids you know to play and have people come and sing the words back to you and having I guess it's probably one of the f- first moments where you hear a whole room sing a, a line back to you. And that is like still to this day, the most rewarding thing, like that people connected with it in such a way collectively and they share that experience, you know, that is like, it is so powerful and it is so much a drug and it, you know, just tiptoeing back into the pandemic when that is taken away, that, uh, gratification that connection that is that is going to be an adjustment to not have because it is such a not that you need that i i try my best to prep myself for not having that one day because it is it's it's so hard to let go of that because that is the true beauty of what we do is having them sing a word or sing a line back or, or move an air drum and and living in that moment watching them be happy watching them kind of be excited that they're doing this in front of you and you're like staring at each other. Like that's, that's such a thing. That's, that'll be the hardest thing to let go of. And psychologically, I think there's a, there's a, a true, uh, not, it's not a damaged kind of thing. It's just like, you need something else to fulfill. (laughs) If you've had that most of your career and it goes away, um, you have to let go of your ego and you have to let go and just like try to cherish that. Now I, I look out with sober eyes and I, I see those things. I'd like bank that in your head. Keep that for when you're sitting on a bench one day, <laughs> you're seven years old. You can't hear a damn thing. Yeah, but Keep you say memories. that. But look at the guys. Look at McCartney. Look at the stones like. Rock yeah. bands have this unbelievable longevity of career that. Everyone you mentioned are multimillionaires. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I, man, think about it, man, McCartney, the Rolling Stones, they're still touring. Yes, but they're touring life is way more plush 
than my home life. Like they're, the, every accommodation <laughs> is met at the highest standard. Of course, they're going to continue to tour because it's amazing. <laughs> and they're playing stadiums every night. We're playing like, you know, smaller places and it's we're 12 guys on top of each other. And, you know, we're ordering like Fridays. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, it, music will keep you young. Yeah, and I, I can't imagine there ever being a time, I don't care how old you are, that you're not going to find a way, even if it's just at some roadhouse down the street from you, that you're not going to get up and and just play your guitar, Rock even it if it's yeah. like four dudes drinking cheap beer, yeah. eating nuts, like, because <laughs> it's just what you do. Uh, they'll always, and, you know, if Seven Dust ever, you know, when we talk about our plan of our exit strategy. We, we would like to still be able to poke our head out even when we officially stop touring, but you know, Hey, they're having this type of show nostalgia, you know, like, like we would love to always be able to have our relationships intact first so we can poke our heads out from time to time and play those shows, get that person to person contact, you know, cause that, that would be a, a good thing. I don't really think I'll always love touring, but I will definitely always, love playing shows if that makes any sense yeah and what's crazy is that you know i I never really think of seven dust as quote unquote like a new metal band but like the labels are out there that it's the era when you guys came up yeah Yeah, whatever you want to label it but it's crazy that that kind of genre of music is finding this rebirth now with new rock fans and i see it keep popping up on social media that you talked about earlier like Angel Sun, that that video is like this time capsule. When you go and look at all of the people in that video, yeah, what a time capsule of of a moment that video is. Yeah, to have all those that that era, the new metal era, that was there was a lot of heavy hitters there. You yeah, know, System of Down, and you know, so many people there. It's hard to even remember, but I remember that day. Lincoln Park, Incubus. Yeah. Yeah. God, man. And like, what they're here. Like it was such a good reason to be there. And everyone was truly friends at the time. The community then was so strong. Bands were super supportive and it's a different world. I'm not going to be the old guy saying, well, it was better back then, but there was so much, there was so much, connection between bands back then and everyone was thriving and everyone was learning from each other and it was a great era like with any new era of music that's pioneered i don't mind being called a new metal band there was a huge movement with that it was great it was fun it was some cool bands that came out of it the grunge era the you know the whatever the 80s, era. hair 80s. metal i loved all of it me I loved, too i loved the 80s I'm really into that. I watch like these old 80s videos and I, my eyes get watered. And I'm like, oh my God. I loved it. I loved it with all my heart, you know. Me and Chris Daughtry were analyzing the Journey Separate Ways video. Yes. And, and it's like, the, it's the worst, best video in the world. <laughs> exactly. And all we kept thinking was like back then, like late 70s, early 80s, like how did those guys function in those tight pants? Why, why didn't Chris Daltrey and Lizzie Hill recreate that video? Oh. How the opportunity missed there is just <laughs> baffling. I almost text him. I, when, I, when they did the song, I saw that. I almost text him like, dude, you had an opportunity. Shot by shot. I mean, they could have found the facility. They could have done it and just be, 
between both of them and that maybe have some of the uh hellstorm band beast the other guys the random keyboard you know <laughs> it's the best video i've watched that video and start me up by the rolling stones like thousands of times it is <laughs> It is the cringiest, best thing I've ever seen in my life. I love it so much. Rock and roll is good for cringy moments. And and yeah. a lot of them come up on the show a lot. You guys have been out on the road a long time. When you're going to be a hard touring rock band, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the game. Spinal Tap always is proven true. Think back of all the shows you've played. Give me your best Spinal Tap moment. Stuck in a pod, falling off stage. Like, what has oh, happened so, to you? Yeah, we had one show where <laughs> we, I mean, there's been many, many shows where weird things have happened, but there was one show where everyone was kind of shut down. We were in West Palm or something, I think. We were playing with Megadeth or some kind of weird random metal festival. And we're playing, and we go out there, all guns are blazing. We're doing our thing. Um, my guitar, uh, kind of starts fizzling out and we had these trampoline kind of things so i end up my guitar goes out and i end up falling like off the front of the stage john at the same time and i'm not lying this is so weird like his guitar is still working but he falls over the monitors <laughs> trying to go tell the other guy that i'm out and so him and i are off the stage vinny's bass gets a drink knocked on top of it. So basically it's this huge festival and all three of us, I'm talking within a three and a half minute, four minute window. We're just out of commission. Like it's the Morgan and back. LJ show right now. So they're just starting like, and Morgan's like, and he's like, they're playing like, I forget what song it was, but he's playing and LJ's singing and there's no key or there's no anything. And it's just like, and, and the funniest thing was, I remember just watching on the side, just them abandoning, aborting the mission. It was just a very subtle, like slow, like 10. He's like, <laughs> it's just like, you see him just give up, you know? <laughs> but it was just one of those things where like, we really, really, really needed the show to be great. And it was a, a disaster and we were screaming and we played like two songs and it was, yeah, every, three guys out of commission, you know? It's yeah, kind of hard to have a, a lot. to have a seven dust performance. I mean, no disrespect to Morgan and Lejean. Yeah, I mean there was no no <laughs> strings. <in this. laughs> they should have just went. And that was the new metal era. There was kind of hip hop thing going on, so they should have just broke into the. Yeah, Morgan could have laid down a fat beat, and LJ just yeah. could have started rapping or something to try and yeah freestyling. Yeah, <laughs> no, we had a lot of things happen. We've had people, you know bum rush the stages we've had all kinds of just weirdness and you know people telling us crazy news while we're on stage i mean it's been every range of event that could happen we, we've played so many shows it's, it's bound to happen it was really yeah. weird for me when we were getting ready to sign off of waf and kind of looking back at my radio career and like the moments that i was on the radio to have to talk about right whether it be Art, legendary artists passing away, 9-11, yeah. the marathon bombing, just like all of those moments and you're living it in a very public way in the moment. It's it's crazy to think about all of the things that have happened. Yeah, I mean, you, and you were like kind of the voice of, you're like expressing it uh, for the masses. You're like this person everyone's listening to and like, what's your take on this? And, 
you know, what uh, you're, you're providing this information to people and they're ha- hanging on the edge of their seat. And you're like, you know, you're the messenger for a lot of that stuff. And so you're like really acutely aware of the event and the magnitude of it. And I am not Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're like a rock metal version of what like you're our, you're my Walter Cronkite. I appreciate that. You guys have been through so much over the years, business ups and downs, bad record deals, management issues, like all of that stuff. If you could give advice to the Clint I met 25 years ago, business advice, personal advice, maybe somebody's listening to this at the very beginning stages of their musical career, like what's some good advice to give to somebody like that? Well, I mean, there's so much advice. I mean, I could write a, uh, I could write a book on. You and should end, end, end up writing a book that called Protection, <laughs> a protection plan for musicians. But you know, first off, I would say I'll have one or two people, probably two, if you could, uh, people that are passionate about reading the language that is in any contract. Be it is not fun to be the business guy in a band, but you got to have somebody. Uh, you know, not businessman, business person, anybody in your band that is involved in reading contracts, not hiring an attorney, having some knowledge. So reading exactly what you sign. Um, That's good life advice, no matter what your business is. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just about uh, taking accountability, not, you know, trusting too many people. Um, I would say the the most valuable currency a band has is the connection between them and the, and the fans. So you build the relationship with them. It could be person to person, but every, if someone likes your band, take two seconds to say hello, take two seconds to write a comment back to them in this current dynamic, um, build relationship individually, collectively through shows, try to have connections with those people. Cause once you do have an uh, actual direct contact with them. There's, there's a bond that's created there that I've noticed. So be very mindful of the people um, that are interested in your band, give them a little bit of energy because they will always come back. They'll always, most of the time, me as a fan, if someone that I really like is nice to me, or they say they give me a, you know, a little bit of respect. I'm like, I'm a fan for life, man. They were so cool. That goes a long way, but um, you know, and then also lastly, just putting everything you have in the product you're making the songs don't if it do it because you love doing it do it because you the love the way they're good song and a band makes you feel uh that will give you lots of good things that will bring the the byproduct of that will be success the byproduct of that will be uh thriving and evolving as a writer you know if you have something good that that you love there's a good chance that someone else is going to like it too you know, or, you know, you can't really, really expect anyone else to like it. You just have to love it. And like, that is success. If you can write a song that you love, stick with that. And then maybe you're, you'll be able to slick your way through this disgusting business <laughs> and get, <laughs> get a career, but it's tough, man. It's not for the week. It's, you know, it, it looks easy when people are already established and they're doing it, but it takes a lot of things to happen to get to that you know it's a tough business so do it because you love it i guess that's to sum all that up do it because you love it 
create music because you love the process of creating music. Everything else will figure its way out. Did the pandemic give you an opportunity to discover something outside of music that you love? Did you develop like a love of cooking or gardening or reading books or something that some weird ass hobby you never thought you'd love? I, I, I read more books than I have in my entire life through the <laughs> pandemic. Um, I, I learned more about recording uh, than I ever have. I've been in this game a long time. I spent that time saying, okay, I'm going to be a, I'm going to become a better engineer. Uh, so yeah, I learned it was music. Some of it was music based, but it was not in the normal realm that I, I planned. So I got yeah, to build my own too. studio. I work out of my own studio now. This is mm-hmm. MCHQ. And as I was like, Getting it put together. It's the cleanest studio I've ever worked in, by the way. That old AF studio is disgusting. <laughs> and as yeah, I, I was I'm not doing. And as I was like putting things together, if you so right there is the door. And if you go right outside that door, what you will see on the wall, which is one of my most prized possessions, is my seven dust gold record from home. Is right outside yeah. the door on the wall. And I see it every day when I come in and out of work. And I just think about like, you know, the crazy journey that we've all been on and the people well, I mean, uh, that we met that we've, we're totally different people than we were when we met. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and that gold record in all honesty, I mean, there was a huge part of that being the reality was from the area that from what you guys did, your support, the the radio love we got there um there was a huge presence there and that was like that was one of those gold records you saying like you were really a part of this it's not us trying to say hey you know you helped make this happen thousands and thousands of people that we connected through the radio from what the support the shows y'all put on were always amazing and that you know it was a huge huge thing so that that i missed that relationship with uh, we don't have those connections with radio stations or, or people like that anymore. It was we used to have a, about four or five people, and you obviously being included. There's of those major cities we go to and really like and really love, enjoy uh, our time with, and oh, we're gonna hang out with them at that show. And you know, you 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 know, you came, you did a lot. We recorded in your area. You hung with us all. So you were part. I of did your family. grocery shopping for like two months. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised we even ate because I was drinking (laughs) like a fish. My uh, interns made more packy runs for you guys in the time you recorded home. Yeah. That the guys at the- We recorded it in your backyard. Yeah. The liquor store guys knew us by first name because they were like, oh, it's right around the time that Mistress Carrie's interns are going to come buy all the booze for Seven Dust tonight. It was ridiculous. It was insane. God, it's amazing we even recorded anything during that time. <laughs> and the album holds up. Like, that record yeah. is, it holds up. I don't know how, but we did. It was fun. Now, I, it, was, it was a cool time. It was a lot of fun. Um, speaking of local ties with Seven Dust, and obviously the different people we've become, I have to ask you this. I saw the video that Mark Tremonti and John Connolly made with Mark challenging John to run the Boston Marathon. Now, I ran the marathon in 2019. Damn. Having grown up here, having broadcasted from the finish line, having been that drunk college kid along the the marathon route, cheering the runners on growing up. 
John has become like Olympian level elite athlete. Yeah. It's A, insane, and B, he's now going to tackle arguably the most famous and most difficult marathon course in the world. Give me your predictions. Tell me how you think he's going to do. Uh, see, I know all about John Conley's stats, and I, I'm like you know, pretty big fitness advocate myself. But his level of commitment to that is is a whole nother thing. So I I I I really in tune with what he does. I he's obviously going to you know take it as serious as anyone could possibly take it. He's training methodically. His whole plan is to the T. It's going to be great. Uh, I think he's going to absolutely blow out anything. If he get, I, I'm I'm saying about a three fifteen, three hours fifteen minutes is where he's going to come in. And I've, I, if anything, he'll be under that with his training plan where he's at right now. Uh, he's just he's incredible, man. He's like a machine, and that's the whole thing. And just to be the age he is, and just crushing what he's doing, it's just you know, I I mean that's the whole thing. If it wasn't for the fitness aspect of our life. It, I think him and I will go crazy, but yeah, I'm so proud of him and it's all in. I, you can't do those type of runs and do the training he does without being completely obsessed. And he is a thousand. I mean, that's uh, you, he will not talk about anything else. Well, I <laughs> bring I, it up because when I, takes. I ran it and I trained and took it I, seriously. Yeah. I mean, come on, you did it. I, I, I have never, I've done half marathons till I'm blue in the face. You did a full marathon. That is huge. You did the Boston. Like that is, that is, I mean, yeah. But, but I, first of all, I hated it, loved it, wouldn't change it, but it's agony. And second of all, you know, me with my two different size feet and all the medical issues, like I'm not the elite physical specimen that John Connolly is. So I will tell you, it took me six hours, 24 minutes and 50 seconds John Connolly could run the marathon twice. <laughs> if the prediction of your time is correct, he could run it twice in what yeah. it took me to finish it one time. It doesn't matter. I, I tell people all the time, if you walk 26 plus miles, that would be hard. If you, if you do anything for that long, <laughs> it's hard. Be, yeah. Sitting on the couch for four hours is, is kind of hard. Like I need to get up and do something, but yeah, that just the fact that you did it, you participated, you went out there. That's, that's the, you're part of the 1%, you know, that have actually done that. So it doesn't matter the time, your personal, you know, time is personal to you. John is a machine and has no, no, like the Terminator. So he's going to do the, the Terminator numbers, but I'm excited to watch it. I actually was almost on, uh, I was almost got a ticket to do that. I was going to commit to do it with him. And, but, uh, I never got the, the bib yeah, we can get bib. you a bib honey if you want a bib there's I, mm. because the way that it works with the boston marathon for any non-runners that might be listening that there's qualification times yeah it's, yeah you my have to, my finish time wouldn't qualify an 80 year old woman <laughs> to run the bot that's fact to run the boston marathon but what the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, does is they give bibs to amazing nonprofit organizations in a wide yeah. spectrum of organizations, including Mark Tremonti's organization. 
And yeah. that's how they get runners to raise money for charity and get official bibs. So that's what I did was that I ran for a veterans charity because there was no way in hell I was ever going to qualify. But it was, I got the finisher's medal. I got the bib, the whole thing. If you want to run it, I'll get you a bib. But what I was going to mm. s- think about it. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that if you guys wanted to come up and cheer him on. Actually, it's funny you say that because I really think I'm going to do that. Um, if I, if I, I, I'm able where I'm at fitness wise, I could get through the marathon, like no problem, but it would be uh, very slow, you know, just, but I might, if there's a possibility of getting a bib, a last minute bib, I might jump on it. But it, either way, it's such a huge milestone thing for John and the charity itself. I, I might take a flight up there just to, just to watch him come through and be there for him and all the other people that are, you know, just making it through that thing. I, I think it would be a cool event regardless of even John being there just to be. Well, that's know, what I was going to say. Seven Dust is so ingrained in Boston, even though you guys aren't born or raised here, but that the city has just adopted you that marathon Monday in Boston is something that I think everyone just needs to experience once in their life because it's just amazing. Well, my son's a huge runner too. So maybe I'll have him come up with me and just have that experience watching John come through and yeah, I I think I'm, I just made my mind up. Yeah. one way or the other <laughs> i got i'm gonna have this bib number i, I was gonna watch it like play by play i'm so excited for him but man yeah. he just did 20 miles the other day i'm like you, you'll be fine but that but you I'll, I'll leave with this like at mile 20 like is that where it becomes like okay mile 20 so it depends on the course it is very well known that mile 20 is the halfway point for the boston marathon yeah meaning that's the top of the hills. That's Heartbreak Hill. That's what's hard about the course is that the first half of the Boston Marathon is downhill. So yeah. what happens is runners go out super fast. They make that mistake and they think, oh, this is easy. And then you get into the hills and all the muscles that relaxed for the first 10 miles get yeah. engaged and all the muscles that have been working hard are fatigued. And then you start. So you hit the top of the hills at mile 20 And this is where my boyfriend, now husband, was with a bunch of his friends holding up signs for me at the the top of Heartbreak Hill. And everybody's trying to be so supportive. And they're like, only six more miles to go. Uh, It's got to seem like. And you're like, shut (laughs) the fuck up. I hate you and your face. Because six miles for most people is brutal by itself at any pace. You've already run 20 miles and 20 miles. And you're doing it in April in New England. And when I started the marathon, it was pouring rain. Then the sun came out and it got really hot and humid. It was in the 70s. Then the clouds came in. It started raining again. Then the wind picked up and it was like 35 mile an hour winds. So you're fighting these winds in the hills. Now you're wet and you're cold, and you're tired, and you hit mile 20 at the top of the hill, and some jerk face that you're in love with, dear, I know my husband's listening, is like, only six more miles, and I was like, I I started crying. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to finish. And he's like, well, I'm going to the finish line because the radio station had a party and a live broadcast waiting for me, so quitting wasn't an option. 
And then, yeah, that, and you know that you're like, oh, they're all waiting, and it's the torment. They're tracking it's me the on the app, and then yeah. my husband gets on the T, the elevated subway, and passed me waving from the subway car while I'm running by, and I was like, why did I agree to do this? And then that yeah. all goes away when you make that final turn, and you get to the finish line. Like it all goes away. Yeah, it's well, good for you, man. That's incredible. Well, yeah. I. I agree with you that John Connolly is going to cut my time in half. That's my prediction that he's going to half it. Yeah. Bastard. I say 315. Uh, if he gets anywhere close to that, I'm just going to be like, man, what a, <laughs> what an amazing runner. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited for him. It's going to be a good cause too. Well, I'm glad that we got to catch up. Me too. Me too. It's been too long. Miss you. We love you with all of our heart. You know that. The new EP is called Ghost Rider, the new Seven Dust record coming out sometime this summer. And then obviously yeah. you guys will be hitting the road. So we'll see you when you're back out on tour. I can't wait. Can't wait. I'm going to go uh, crush my knees playing basketball with my son. <laughs> Have fun with that. Yeah, I will. There he is, the one and only Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. His new EP, Ghost Rider, comes out on February 17th. And just as a little side note, when we were talking about the campfire video for the song Angel's Son, I want to correct myself. It was not Lincoln Park. It was Incubus that was in the video, alongside everyone from System of Down to Cold Chamber, uh, Il Nino, and so many other bands. I linked the video in the show notes of this episode so you can check it out. You'll also find the links to the corresponding playlist for this week's episode, filled with Clint's music and all of the artists that we talked about in the interview. You'll also find all of Clint's social media links. You'll be able to find all the links for Seven Dust and all of my links as well. I also threw in a link for John Connolly's charity run in the Boston Marathon if you choose to make a donation. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. All of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates Boil down to about five minutes and you get it five times a week. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. Join me every Tuesday night live on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, and you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 